Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer jumps back into the Beatitude series called Life Signs of a Believer. Do you remember a time when you were really hungry? What did you do to satisfy that need? In this episode, we take a look at Blessed Are Those Who Hunger. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. And now, here's Heath. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. We are continuing our series, The Life Signs of a Believer. And we call these the life signs of a believer because we're studying the Beatitudes. Remember, Beatitudes gets its name from the Latin beatus, which is a word that is translated blessed in our English Bibles. This word blessed, we understand, is, uh, it can be translated happiness, but it's not a simple happiness, like I'm happy that it's warm in here as opposed to cold. It's more like happy are those whose names are written in the book of life. And so when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, we remember that Matthew 4.23 says that it is the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is describing to us what the kingdom of God is like, and he begins by saying, here are those who go there. Because you know not everybody goes to the kingdom of God, right? I know every time someone dies, we always want to say he's in a better place. Scripturally speaking, most people are not in a better place. Most people are going to hell. And we have to understand that because there's a lot of us who think we're going on to a better place, but actually we're going to hell because we're part of that wide gate because we don't look like this. We don't look like children of the kingdom. And so Jesus wants to make it very clear before you get really excited about the kingdom of God, before you revel in the glories that await you at death, why don't you make sure that you have your passport? And so these are the life signs of a believer. We learned first that the first attribute of a believer uh, was that they were poor in spirit, that they were impoverished of spirit, that when they come to God, they come to God hat in hand, that I have nothing to offer God. That in my flesh, Paul said, dwells no good thing. There's my, my good works are as filthy rags. We saw also that we are those who mourn over our sins. When we come to Jesus, it's not just we like the idea of heaven and I pray to this deity who will give me some bauble, some toy, some blessing in the future. It's that I'm mourning over my sin. My sins have separated me from God and that grieves my heart. And it creates a repentant individual. We also see that when we came to Jesus, we are those who are meek. Remember what meekness is? It's a settled confidence in God. We're not wild and untamed and unbroken. It's that we have surrendered our strength to a higher power. By faith, we put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord, the one who has rightful ownership of our life and gets to yank on the reins of that horse to get us to go whatever direction he wants us to. And this morning, we're going to look at what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed, right? Born again. It's the very term that was used in Matthew 5, uh, uh, Matthew, not Matthew 5, but Matthew 16 of Simon when he says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon. You're a born again person when you can confess that. It's the same term that was used in Matthew, 16, or Matthew 24 of the faithful servants as opposed to the unfaithful who are going into outer darkness into weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. So when we say blessed, we're saying born again are the poor in spirit. Born again, those who, upon whom God's favor rests, born again are those who mourn over their sins, those who are poor in spirit, they mourn, they, uh, and this morning we get to, they hunger and thirst after righteousness. So let's figure out what this verse means. We're going to pick apart this verse. There's really three key concepts in understanding Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. One is, what does it mean to hunger and thirst? Then we're going to look at what is this righteousness that we are hungering for? And then finally, what does it mean that we will be satisfied having hungered for this righteousness? So first let's look at, number one, our hunger reveals our identity. Blessed are those who 
hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we need to know what hungering and thirsting looks like. Many of us, we really fail to grasp what true hunger is. It's because if you're anything like me, you don't like to go hungry. I mean, is there anybody here who, you just enjoy that little rumbling of the stomach. You enjoy that feeling of emptiness. You enjoy that feeling of longing as your body desires to consume something to satisfy that. You don't like that. You have snacks in every place in your house. You got snacks in your car. You got it in your glove box. You got it in your office, in your, uh, in your drawer in the office. You have a snack drawer, dads, that you hide from your children. Do you not? My kids always knew where mine was, but we have snacks everywhere because we don't like the feeling of hunger. And as soon as we feel it, we're like, man, I've got to pop some Little Debbies, a Snickers, a Fritos. I, I got to grab something because I hate this feeling. And so many of us, we don't really know what hunger is like. This word hunger here is the same word hunger that was used in Matthew chapter four, verse two, talking about Jesus. It says, and after fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, he hungered. It's one of those places where the English translation really fails to kind of live up to how Jesus is feeling. 40 days of no food. How do you feel? You feel hungry. And so that is what is described here in this passage, the same word. Blessed are those who hunger. There's a certain desperation about you as you're going, as you're hunting out and searching for food. Most of us have never been so desperately hungry that we're searching for food. Uh, there are a few times even in my own life that I've felt that. As I've told you many times, I grew up in a small town in a rural area of Iowa and nine children in my family. And because of that, there were times where we had, we had lean times. You know, we were poor, didn't have enough. And we got to a place in our life where we didn't have enough to buy food. My dad didn't believe in welfare and that kind of thing. And so we just, we just got by as best we knew how. And, and I remember the very first time I felt a desperation for food as a child. Because I got, you know, you, as, as children do, and I, I were asking what's for dinner, and there's sort of hushed tones, and my mom is crying on the couch. I'm trying to figure this out. And one of my siblings, probably my older sister, she was always the responsible one. She, she would, somebody informed me that we don't have food in the house right now. There is no dinner. I didn't know what to make of that. I had never experienced a time where I felt hunger, but yet had nothing, no hope that it was gonna be satisfied. And it created a desperation in this little young boy's heart. And I went searching through the house. I remember opening up the fridge and it was empty except for like a half bottle of mustard in there. And I was like, that, I began to feel the desperation. I, I kind of got panicked. I started looking around in freezer, and you know, there's like a dead raccoon in the freezer, and you know, crazy, don't ask, uh, crazy stuff. And I'm, I'm looking around, I'm opening up the cupboards, they're empty. There's not even canned goods, not even canned corn. Uh, you know, there wasn't even that. And so I began to feel desperate, and I was searching on the top of the fridge and in these places, and there was no food to be found in the entire house. And then I stumbled upon an ancient box of like, Gerber baby flakes. I don't even know if they make those anymore, if it's legal. There's probably lead paint in there or something. There was a layer of dust on this Gerber flakes, and I remember wiping it off before I even knew what expiration dates were. <laughs> and I reconstituted some baby flakes in water, and I ate what amounted to wet newspaper that night. And, but I just remember the desperation that overtook my soul because I was hungry. I, I had to have something. I had to find something. I'll, I'll, and, and at that point, I would settle for anything. This is the kind of hunger that Jesus is talking about. He's saying that there's a hunger and thirst inside the heart of every human being on earth. The problem is that sometimes we try to fill it with things that don't fit and they don't satisfy We try to satisfy it with things like the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. For the lust of the flesh, probably the easiest example to come up with is Esau. You know, by the way, lust of the flesh, let's make sure we define our terms here. Lust of the flesh is when we have this longing to gratify a physical drive or desire. It can be for food, it can even be for rest. It can be for, you know, sexual fulfillment. There's a, there's a physical drive. There's something inside our hearts going, you need this, pursue this, go for this, satisfy this. And that was Esau. Hebrews 21 verse 15 says, see to it that none of you fails to obtain the grace of God. What does that mean? See to it that none of you in the pursuits of Esau find out that you're actually unsaved. You did not obtain the grace of God. You're going to hell. He says, make sure none of you are in this category. And then he goes on to describe what lost people look like. And 
he describes Esau's life. He says that none of you is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. He takes this spiritual blessing and he casts it aside. This is worth nothing to me. All I want is this, this bowl of soup. He says, for afterward, he desired to inherit the blessing. He still wanted to go to heaven. But he was rejected and he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That the gratification of his flesh was far more important to Esau than the satisfaction of his spirit. That's the lust of the flesh. What about the lust of the eyes? Lust of the eyes is when our eyes see things and we desire to acquire those things. And we feel like that fills those holes in our life. Some of you call it retail therapy, you know, where you're feeling bad, you're feeling depressed, you're down, and you're like, there's nothing that'll pick up my spirits than going out to, to, to Target or out to the mall someplace, and I'll buy myself a new outfit, and I bring that home, and that ah, gives me a sense of satisfaction. What it is, is it's a sense of gratification, that I am fulfilling an, a, a human lust, a lust of the eyes, that I just want to acquire things. I want to get bigger houses. I want nicer cars. I want better clothes. I want to eat more tasty food. Well, I guess that's lust of the flesh. But, you know, you want to acquire things, and you think in the hoarding and acquiring of things, you become like, you know, Lord of the Rings, Smeagol, my precious, right? You know, all this stuff is mine, and I'm hoarding it to myself, and I'm, I just, I long for these things because it gives my life a sense of worth, and satisfaction. That's the lust of the eyes. Luke, 6, Luke 12, Jesus told a story about a man who suffered from the lust of the eyes. It says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. Nothing wrong with having a lot of things. God doesn't condemn that. He says, I will do this, though I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Again, not a bad thing to, you know, to house your grain. What God is going to condemn him for is how he wants to use what God has given him. Because this fellow, because he has all these things, wealth has a way of making us feel self-satisfied and we can take care of ourselves. It brings a certain measure of pride to us, or it can. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Okay, that's, that's the deceit, by the way, of riches. I have a lot of things. I can buy my way to stuff. I'm obviously going to have a long time to enjoy this. He says, and then he looks at the purpose of his life, and he says, relax. Just enjoy yourself. That's the purpose of your life. Work hard so that you can relax. That was this fellow's outlook on life. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's the purpose of my life is that I work really hard so I can invest in my favorite person in the world, and that's me. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Satisfy your flesh. Gather things for yourselves. Make yourself feel good. Little trivia question. Who is the only man in the Bible God personally called a fool? It's this guy. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. You're going to die. And the things that you have prepared, God, what is God condemning him for? Just the gathering of stuff to make himself feel good. He says, now who will these things be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. How does God feel about the lust of the eyes? He's like, it's disappearing. Why are you, you know, enjoy the things you have. Sure, nothing wrong with that. But don't make that the purpose of your life. It's just to acquire more, to get more stuff, to make yourself feel good. It's empty. The last thing is the pride of life. It's when we seek to be noticed. We want to be honored. We want to be people to ooh and ah and pay attention to me. Look at me. Hey, hey, look at me over here. Notice me. You know, it's, it's YouTube influencers. <laughs> it's, it's people on Facebook. Hey, look at my life. Look at me. Think, think much of me. Or when we make the primary purpose of our life just to gain a legacy for ourselves. I hope that people remember my name. Why? Whose name should they be remembering as they recall our life? They should look at your life and go, wow, he represented Jesus well. It's not a big thing for people to be noticing and remembering my name. I don't need a library wing named after me. What we need is for people to remember Jesus' name, but that was the pride of life. And who do we see the pride of life in most chiefly? First sin of the universe, not Adam and Eve. Who was it? It was Satan. And what did he do? Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. I will be like the most high. I will set my heavens, you know, my throne in the heavens. 
He just had this great longing and desire for people to look at him. Behold the glory of Lucifer. And just, he just wants people to see him and notice him and to speak well of him and to speak highly of him. And that can, can that become a God for Christians too? Where we make the chief end of our life so that nobody is ever upset with us? Nobody's ever cross with us? Nobody, and people are always speaking well of us and, and, we, and we consider it the chief uh, you know, negative thing if anybody is ever upset. And pretty soon now we've made man our God. If man is happy with me, I'm doing okay. If everybody speaks well of me, I'm doing okay. What did Jesus say about that? Woe unto you, divine judgment. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Your goal in life is not to get everybody to like you, for nobody to talk about you. Newsflash, people are gonna talk about you. They're not gonna like, if you're standing on the word of God, people are gonna talk about you. They're not gonna like what you stand for. They're not gonna like your gospel. They're gonna talk about the way you dress. They're gonna talk about the way you smell. Okay, that's just humanity for you. They're gonna talk. Worry more that we're pleasing the one to whom we will give an account. But that's how the pride of life manifests itself, even in Christians, that we're just concerned about our reputation. All three of these things, the lust of the flesh, just giving into fleshly urges for you know sexuality or food or whatever, or the lust of the eyes to just gather and acquire things so that I feel secure, or the pride of life that people always speak well of me, they look up to me, they, that my name has a lasting legacy to it. These three things, 1 John 2 warns us about. He says in verse 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. You say, I'm not a worldly person. I don't, I don't love those things. He goes on. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's, what he's about to describe, he says, if this characterizes your life, you're an unsaved person. The love of God is not in you. You say, well, I said already, I'm not a worldly person. Thank God, I've, I've got the Spirit of God in me. But then what does he mention? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, uh-oh, that's the lust of the flesh. The desire of the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes. And the pride of life. He says, those three things, he says, is not from the Father, but is from the world. When these three things, or any one of them, characterize our life, that my life is the pursuit of fleshly gratification, eating and drinking and making myself feel good and comfortable, or my, my life is characterized by the pursuit of the eyes, just gathering and working hard to maintain this standard of living so that I gather a lot of things so I feel secure, or the acquisition of the accolades of man, that people all love me and they praise me and they speak well of me. These three things, John says, are of the world. And when these are the primary love of your life, the primary concern for you, he says the love of the Father is not in you. That ought to scare some of us because all of us struggle against these three things, don't we? Because it's embedded in our flesh to want these things. But he says, when we live for these things, we're hungering for the wrong things. If we wanna take a, a hunger test this morning, and this test is very, very accurate, we would look at a few things. Number A, we would, talk, we would look at our talk. What we hunger for, we will talk about. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How do we know what somebody loves, what they hunger for, what their affections are for? Listen to them. What do you talk about? When you go out to dinner with your buddies, what are the first things out of your lips? That's where your affections lie. For a lot of you, you're really affectionate for Kentucky basketball. And lately, we've got a few volunteer fans out there, you know. Okay, so that's where our affections are. It reveals it. When somebody hungers for something, will they talk about it? When your kids are hungry, do they talk to you, mom or dad, about it? Mom, I'm, Dad, I'm hungry. Dad, what's for dinner? You know, they're gonna talk about it. Their hungers are there and they, and they make it known. They advertise that hunger, don't they? We talk about that which we hunger for. We're just out for a dinner the other night with some friends <laughs> and one of them commented, you know, only in America can you be eating a full meal and you are stuffed to the point where you've got a doggy bag to take home and you're still talking about all the good food you eat elsewhere around the greater Ashland area. That's where we are, we hunger, we love our food, we love things that taste good. May not be good for the waistline, may not be good for my liver, but it tastes good and we'll talk about it. We can tell what we have, what we're affectionate for because we'll talk about those things. So 
In your conversations, what do your conversations reveal about your hungers? It reveals everything. If God is never a portion of your conversation, friends, we don't get to say that we hunger for the Lord if he's never in our conversations. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What about our treasure? You spend money on the things that you hunger for. Jesus says, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, what's also there? It's your heart. Okay, where we spend our money is one of the primary ways that we determine what we're really hungry for, what we're affectionate for. Go ahead, challenge yourself. Outside of just maybe your, your basic subsistence, okay, where do you spend your money? Those are the things you hunger for. And can we honestly say that we hunger for God if none of our cash flow ever funnels to him? We cannot. Because where the treasure is, the heart is there. We follow the money and we can see what we hunger for. See, time, what you spend time doing. Proverbs 20, 11 says, even a child, even children, you know, they're known by their actions, whether their conduct is good and right. So let's look at what a person does. We can tell what fills their heart. So when you have free time outside of your job or whatever, what you do reveals your hungers because when nobody is scheduling you, no one's programming you, what you're driven to do with your time is where your affections lie. Sunday, what does that mean to you? I mean, clearly for all of you in here, you have some degree of hunger for God because you're here. You could be elsewhere. You know, you could have slept in this morning. You could, I would say you could be out in the boat on the lake, but there's probably not too many who want to do that on a day like today. But there's so many other things you could be doing. Let me talk you out of coming to church, okay? You could be out at the mall. <laughs> you could be shopping. You could be catching up on household chores. You could be working in your yard, getting ready for the planting season coming in the spring. You could be at home watching TV in your pajamas, which you never changed out of, and eating a bowl of breakfast cereal. All these things you could be doing, but you're here. Why? I believe it's because you have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You spend your time differently. There's things that you, you want different things from your life than what the rest of the world does. And so your talk, your treasure, your time reveal what you're hungry for. What do those three things reveal about your life? And so in looking at that, it reveals that our hunger identify, or, or reveals our identity. How can you tell what an animal eats? Watch him. You know, what kind of animal is this? Is this an herbivore or a carnivore? You ever watch animal documentaries? Can you tell who the herbivores are? Okay, you don't typically see giraffes leaning over and munching on a zebra's neck, do you? I mean, that would be terrifying, by the way, if there was a carnivorous giraffe. That would be, that would, it's like nightmare fuel for me. But herbivores, they're obvious. They're, they're peaceful. They're hanging out. Giraffe and zebras, they're chilling. Hey, what's up, brother? We're just eating this grass together. We all like the grass. We enjoy the salad. We're vegans. And then along comes another animal, and you're like, huh, he's, got, he's yellow with black spots. I wonder what he is. I wonder if he's a herbivore or a carnivore. And then all of a sudden, you know, they start playing the scary music. And, and this leopard, he jumps up, and he starts munching on the zebras. Your appetite reveals your identity. I think God is saying the same thing to us. Your appetite reveals your identity. If you have no hunger for God, you have no hunger to grow, you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, friends, you're not born again. Or you're extremely sick. Our hungers reveal our identity. Number two, we're going to see blessed people, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. We don't just hunger and thirst for anything. We don't just hunger and thirst for fleshly gratification. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can spot a child of God right away because they're talk, they're treasure, and their time. You can just see they're hungry for the Lord. They're always talking about God. They're telling you what they learned in their Bible study. They're telling you about your, their church. They're talking about the different outreach activities and the ministries we're doing. And what they're most passionate about in life is the Lord. That person is an herbivore. They love to be around all these other herbivoric, is that a word? <laughs> herbivoric sheep. They love to be around God's sheep and just eating the, the, the spiritual grass together and feeding and grazing on what God has. How can you tell who the carnivores are? They come and they eat the sheep. <laughs> 
You want to be an herbivore. So you can tell what a person is by just simply observing their life, observing what they eat. Blessed people hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, because of that, we need to understand what righteousness is. And I'm going to tell you, there's not universal agreement on what kind of righteousness this is. So we're gonna pick this word righteousness apart. And the two ideas are, are we hungering and thirsting for a, bear with me, imputed righteousness or a personal righteousness? Imputed righteousness, we don't use the word imputed very often. Do you, I mean, when's the last time you said imputed outside of a theology class? Imputed. You'll find this word in Romans 4, 6 in the King James, and it's the, but ultimately what matters is the Greek word behind it. And it's the word logizomai. We get the word logic from it. It means to reason or calculate something to somebody's account. It's an accounting term. And so imputed righteousness is when we take the righteousness that Jesus earned and God transfers it or imputes it into your bank account for you to use. It now belongs to you. It identifies you. It's like when you're a kid at college, you send out your college freshmen, and let's just say they weren't really good at managing their money, and they had too many 12 o'clock pizzas, and they're buying all new clothes, and they're going out to the movies, and they have the latest iPhone, but then they call you on that iPhone they just bought, Mom and Dad, I don't have any money to pay off my college bill. And so you start reasoning through, I can either pay this or they move back home. So you pay it, right? So you carefully reason that out. I'm going to help in this case. And you're going, to, you're going to help them. I'm going to get them through. But next time it's on you. And so you take money from your bank account that you worked hard for, that was in your name and belonged to you, and you're going to transfer that into the account of your college freshman who has a delinquent account with her school because you don't want them in your basement. And so you transferred that money into their account. What'd you do? You imputed that money. If you understand that illustration, you understand imputed righteousness. It's that God took what belonged to Jesus and gave it to you. And God took what belonged to you, your sin and judgment and transferred it to Jesus account. A great verse for that would be 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that's God, made him who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God took the righteousness that belonged in Jesus' account and gave it to us. And God took the sin that was in our account and he put it into Jesus' account. That great transfer describes imputed righteousness. So is that what we're talking about here? That when we hunger, we hunger and thirst for the righteousness that Jesus gives us at salvation? Or is this a personal righteousness that we hunger and thirst for right ways of living? We hunger and thirst for the, the right word of God. We hunger for the very presence of God and to be right with him. That it's a, a desire for this sanctification. Personally, I believe it's both. This word for righteousness can be translated a right standing before God, imputed righteousness, but it also can be used to describe the, the virtue of one's character. And so it can be translated both, and I believe it is, because if you look at these different attributes of the Beatitudes, you'll find that it's something we do at the moment of salvation, but then it's something we continue on all the way through our life, don't we? Those of you who are poor in spirit and you came to Jesus humble, and you realize, I have nothing to offer God. My righteousness are as filthy rags. After you're saved, does that change? And all of a sudden, you're boasting before God. <laughs> you're lucky to get a guy like me. No, that humility stays, doesn't it? And you remain a humble person. Those of you who mourned over your sin, we had to repent of our sins to come to Jesus. Getting saved, you all of a sudden say, well, let sin abound, that grace may abound. I'm just going to go live in sin. I know Jesus. He'll just cover that. His grace is good enough. So I'm going to go here and live like the devil. If that's you, friends, you're not a born-again believer. It's something that God started at salvation, but now you continue to mourn over your sins. Those of you who are meek, you, you trusted Jesus as your Lord. You surrendered control of your life to him at salvation. Does that change? And then now as a Christian, I just declare to God what I'm gonna do. Oh, my life is mine. Thanks for saving me, God. I do appreciate the insurance policy, but I'll take it from here, and I'm just gonna live my life however I want. No, meekness is something we continue to live out as a Christian, as an evidence that we're a born-again child of God. It changes how we respond to trial. It changes how we treat authority under God. It changes how we respond to others when they treat us poorly. 
we continue to be meek people. So righteousness, yes, when we're born again, we hunger and thirst for the righteousness that only God can provide, but having applied it to our account, we continue to long and hunger and thirst to be right before God. Friends, and I've seen that hunger in many of you. You're not hard to spot. Those of you who are hungry and you're throwing open the cupboards of the house looking for food, I've seen that hunger in you and you're here and you want to get into God's word. I actually had, I won't tell you who so you don't get mad. I actually had some person here tell me today they didn't care how long I preached. They shall remain nameless. Okay, but what I'm saying here is, is that people hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're like, I don't care. The, the length of the sermon doesn't determine its quality, but are we packing it full of biblical and spiritual truth? That thing that feeds my heart and soul, I'm in. We continue to be this way as believers. We hunger and thirst for the word of God. First Peter 2, 2 says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Since you're a believer, or are you, you should be hungering and thirsting for the word of God. That's one of the evidences of life. Isn't that a life sign of our baby? If you had a baby mother's, who was born and they were not hungry and they would not want to eat, would you say that's perfectly rational and reasonable? You'd be concerned because what does a normal baby do? They hunger and thirst for the milk. Did you have to teach them that? Here, let me put some milk on your lips here. Maybe I can get you to long for milk someday. Now that baby is born out of the womb crying, hey, garçon, you know, I need some food. And so he's going after mom and he's yelling. It doesn't, it's not like your husband's ladies trained your child at 2 a.m. to go off like an alarm clock. It's in them. I want food and I'm going to cry out for it. I'm hungry. A child who's hungry, whose mom is holding them and she's trying to just have a gentle conversation. The kid's just rooting around looking for food, you know, and he's, you don't have to train a child to do that. It's innate. I desire, I hunger. I'm going to keep looking until I find it. God says, in that way, like newborn babes, it should be innate to every believer. Every person who's born again has a measure of a hunger for God. And if we don't, that's a scary place. I also had a friend of ours we served with in China, had a sweet little girl named Selah. And we had this big to do at our house and we dedicated this child and we prayed for this child. We all signed books and everything. But it wasn't long after that we realized that little baby Selah had, had some issues. She didn't hunger for food like the way other kids do. She couldn't process food the way other kids do. Do you think mom and dad just said, well, we'll figure this out? No, they're going to the doctors right away. I need to get in. This is an emergency. They're gonna take it seriously. When there's no hunger, they're gonna take it very seriously to the point where they move back to the States so their daughter could get a feeding tube and, and adequate health care. That's what you do when you realize there's no hunger there. It's an alarm clock. You know, it's, it's, it's red flags. It's lights flashing. There's something severely wrong if I no longer have an appetite. Spiritually speaking, friends, this is, a lack of appetite for God is not something that you ignore. It's a sign of one of two things. One, you're either spiritually dead. You're not alive. Dead people don't eat much. Or you are severely sick in the faith. There's something that is replacing God in your life. Either way, it's something that we've got to pay very close attention to. We don't put it off. I'll say further here. Let's look at point A under this. Spiritual life creates a hunger for increasingly complex foods. I mean, are there any of you who, you know... Don't lie to me, you're already thinking about lunch. It's okay, I don't fault you. The, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But most of you aren't probably thinking, hey, you know what, college and career group out here, a lot of times you guys will go out for lunches, won't you? I think that's great. Any of you here voting to go to the milk bar? Hey, you know what, we say we go out and we have a great lunch. Uh, maybe I'll order a round of whole, maybe some 2%. You know, some of us watching our figures, so we'll get some skim. And for dessert, we're gonna have chocolate milk. Any of you up for that? No, you guys, you're talking about prime rib, you're talking about barbecue, you know, pizzas, hamburgers, hot dogs, whatever it is, you want real food. In the same way, believers, spiritual life creates a hunger for increasingly complex things. As you grew up, were there things you hated as a child that now you love? You've got a list, don't you? you I used to hate walnuts as a kid, now I eat them. I used to hate olives, now I eat them. I hated all manner of seafood, now I eat it, why? 
because I'm maturing in my appetite. The maturity of my body desires increasingly complex foods. Would you believe I don't just drink milk? Amber does not feed me baby formula at home because I'm mature. As a believer, the same thing is true. Hebrews 5, verses 12 to 14 says, for by this time you ought to be teachers. Mind you, this, they're only, many of them are only a few years old, if even that. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, these few years that have gone by where you've been growing, by this time you ought to be teachers. That you shouldn't just be coming to church going, feed me, feed me, feed me. I didn't get anything out of that. Are people taking care of me? Are they looking after my needs? Feed me. I just come to church to be fed. Who does that sound like when you hear that? Who is it in your own home that just says, mom, feed me, feed me, feed me? It's babies, it's children. Feed me, mom, but I'm not gonna mow the lawn. And we can get babies at church. That, that's a revelation, by the way, that you're still a baby in Christ. The things that come out of your mouth is, how are you taking care of my needs? But your thought is not, how can I teach and minister to others? Can I jump in, for instance, and help out next Sunday night at our evangelistic outreach that we're gonna do? Babies won't volunteer for that. Mature adults will. Mature adults want to teach Sunday school, not just always to be fed. By this time, you ought to be teachers. He says, however, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, just the basics of the word of God, just the basic gospels of how you repent of your sins and come to faith in Jesus, and that's where you live your whole life, you never build on that foundation. He says, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the words of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food, filet mignon of the word, he says that's for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil. Are you mature today? I don't know. Let's, one of the signs is let's look at what you long to eat. Are you still wanting to stay in the shallow end of the pool theologically? You just want to read the same, you know, the same things over and over again, the basics of the Bible? You don't long to venture into the clean section of your Bible? You know what I'm talking about. You don't have a single highlighter note there, do you? When's the last time you read Haggai? When's the last time you read Zephaniah for your quiet time and shared with your Sunday school class everything you learned from the book of Ezekiel? We don't venture into those clean sections, but a person who's hungry for increasingly complex things, you start to get curious, don't you? Hey, I've never read that book. I wonder what's in there. I wonder what all this business about dry bones is anyway. And you, you hunger, you long for deeper things. You're like, I don't just want to sit here and, and read, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. I want to read about the Old Testament. I want to read some of these deeper things. And so our spiritual life creates a hunger for increasingly complex things. We see two here. B, spiritual life creates a hunger for God himself. Psalm 42, one through two says, as the deer pants for the flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Does this man sound desperate for the Lord? He does to me. He's like a guy who's never had a date and he's you know, turning 30 and he says, man, I'm desperate to find a date. You know, he's hungering for the presence of God. I long to be in his presence. He wants to come before God. He doesn't just want a religious life where he comes to church, listens to a sermon, you know, puts 20 bucks in the offering plate and goes home. This is a guy who thirsts to be in the presence of God. Where does that hunger come from? It comes from being a believer. Do you hunger for the presence of God? I don't just mean to know him enough that he gets you saved, that we're using Jesus as a means to go to heaven, but that you actually long for Jesus, that when you get to heaven, that's the chief thing that you want. You know, the psalmist felt that way. In Psalm 73, 25, he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there's nothing I desire besides you. Is that your heart? That the greatest longing of heaven is not streets of gold and that you can eat and eat and never get fat. That's not your greatest longing. The greatest longing for heaven isn't that you're gonna see, you know, your mom and dad who passed away. The greatest longing of heaven isn't that you're gonna be reunited with your pet schnauzer Fritz. For a lot of us, a lot of us, though, that is, that's what we're really longing for. And we have this sort of recognition, God is going to be somewhere there in heaven, and I'll get to him. But really what I want out of heaven is all these things on earth that I missed out on. 
psalmist says, who am, I, who am I in heaven but you? God, you're the only thing I really want in heaven. The fact that my dad is gonna be there is just icing on the cake. God, you're the cake. You're, you're what I really want. That's when you know you're hungering and thirsting for the right things. We'll see number three here. Blessed people will be satisfied. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. When God's children hunger and thirst for righteousness, God is promising them a satisfaction that is deep and abiding. That you'll have a certain enjoyment of life that can only come from God. This word here, satisfaction, it's a term that you would use of livestock. You know, you know sometimes you put out just enough that they need. Other times a farmer may put out more than they need. And the livestock can come and they can eat and eat and eat and fill up and they'll walk away and they can come back anytime they want and they can eat and eat and eat and they're always just in this state of just this satisfaction and this contentment. This is the satisfaction that God is talking about here, that God has provided for us richly in Christ Jesus enough that every time you go back to God, you can fill up as much as you want and you're gonna feel fully satisfied and having been satisfied, you're gonna keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back to fill up on Jesus because only he has what it takes to satisfy your longing heart. The lust of the flesh, just giving in to good food, that doesn't last trying to find satisfaction in pornography or some, or some other adulterous affair, that's not gonna last. That's just gratification. But God offers us a satisfaction in Jesus Christ that the more we receive of him, the more we long for him, the more we feel satisfied in him. And you will be some of the most happy and content people in life. You want your, your kids to be happy, mom and dad? Don't just worry about whether or not they make a good living, that they earn that football scholarship to college, so that they can make a lot of money, so that they can have a lot of things, so that they can indulge the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's not gonna lead them to happiness. That's gonna lead them to possibly temporary gratification. We need to discern the difference between the two, by the way. Gratification and satisfaction, not the same thing. Gratification is the feeling that we get when we indulge a fleshly urge, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. It's the feeling you get when you go to the movie theater and you have a giant tub of buttered popcorn and you even remembered to visit the restroom before the movie started. All life is good. I'm feeling good. I feel content. I feel happy. My bodily needs are cared for. You know, when you go home and you sit down with half a tub of Moose Tracks ice cream and you're gonna watch some Netflix for the night and you feel gratified, but do you feel satisfied? No, you got done, you ate more of it than you should have and now you feel guilty. It's gratification, it's not long-lasting satisfaction that my life means something. You just gratified a fleshly urge like my dog does when he scratches an itch, you know, or you know, when he chews on a bone, he feels gratified, but that dog, he has no capacity for true life satisfaction, not like God promises to the children of God. And yet sometimes when we, are hung, when we hunger and thirst, we try to fill that empty void in our heart with something that is just temporary gratification. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. I'm just gonna try to stuff that hole. And what we find is it's just a black hole and no matter how much we put down that hole, it's never filled up. But we try. It's sort of like if I'm hungry and I'm across the way here in my office and I'm studying and it comes lunchtime, I've got two options here. I may or may not, theoretically, at some point in time in the past, have had Little Debbie's in my snack drawer here at church, or possibly queso-flavored Fritos. But were they there, there's a temptation that goes on in my mind. I am hungry. I long for something that's going to satisfy my heart. Do I pick up a nutty bar? Or do I go downstairs and I get out my romaine hearts and I chop them up with my red bell peppers and my onions and a can of tuna. And I go back up to my office and I eat something that my body actually longs for, something that's actually going to make me a stronger, healthier human in the end. I do that with great frequency, but there are times where I settle for the Nutty Bar and Fritos and I don't feel good about myself and my body doesn't feel good and my joints begin to ache because I'm eating a poor diet. But it was gratifying. Little Debbie's, they don't satisfy. No matter what Snickers says, neither does it. It doesn't satisfy. What does it do? It gratifies. It gives me a temporary, cheap, momentary sense of indulgence of the flesh, but it doesn't give me a satisfaction that my life is right with God, that it matters for something, that it means something. 
That is something Jesus promises. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for those people will have the satisfaction of God. Why don't we do it then? I think it's because some of us are listening to the lie of Satan like when he was whispering to the ear of the woman in the garden. And the woman looks at the fruit and she sees that it's good to eat, lust of the flesh. That it, you know, that, it, that it looks good, you know, lust of the eyes. It desired to make one wise, pride of life. You seeing a pattern here? Satan doesn't have to be smart. He just has to repeat what works. And those three things work on us pretty well. And she takes the fruit because she bought the lie that God won't truly satisfy her, that God is somehow holding something away from you that's going to bring you ultimate happiness. Instead, what does Psalm 107.9 say? He, talking about God, he satisfies the longing soul, the soul that's rummaging through the cupboards looking for desperately something to fill that emptiness in my heart. He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Do you, when you look at your life today, do you, would you say that your life is filled with good things? Do you feel satisfied today? Like your life matters for some. Not that your life is easy, but do you feel uh, just a deep-seated, settled contentment with what God is doing in your life? If not, it may be because you're seeking gratification. You're going after the lust of the flesh, eating and drinking and whatever's gonna make you happy. You're going after the lust of the eyes, just working so you can acquire things and live a life of eat, drink, and be merry, relax. Or maybe it's you're, you're, you're seeking out the pride of life. You're doing whatever it takes in life so that people will look at you and admire you and hit a like and, a, and speak well of you. And you're just living for those things and you're finding that it gratifies for the moment, but there's no deep-seated satisfaction that my life matters for anything eternal. That kind of satisfaction only comes from God and in involving yourself in his mission. Remember, Jesus from his own lips promised it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I'll close here with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Remember the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia? Maybe you've read Mere Christianity or any number of his books, a British theologian. C.S. Lewis said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. And then, and then he says, we are far too easily pleased. Child of God, Psalm 34, 8 challenges us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Try him out. See if what we're sharing here from the word of God isn't true. See if they won't satisfy you. Don't be like one of these little children, like little Heath around Christmas morning. And my parents would put out the stockings and I would load up on chocolate bells and Reese's peanut butter cup trees and those little candy canes filled with M&Ms and I had no self-control whatsoever. And so I'm just eating in this Bacchanalian feast of, of goodness and candy that I never get any other time of the year. But then all of a sudden you get done opening the presents and mom starts offering you real food and you have no appetite for turkey and gravy. Why? Because you filled up on empty things. Child of God, if you wonder today why you don't hunger for God, it may be because you're trying to fill yourself up with the candy of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You're, you're seeking satisfaction from something that can only gratify you. How do we begin to get that hunger back? Can I encourage you to fast? not just from food, but from some of those things that you feel are satisfying that, that, that desire for satisfaction with gratification. What are those things in your life that you're pursuing that keep you from hungering for God? You don't hunger for good, healthy things when you're filling up on candy. And so we try removing some of those things from our life and taste and see that the Lord is good. See if God doesn't give you satisfaction when we hunger and thirst for the right things. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today as we study Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 and what born-again children look like, children of the kingdom. Lord, it's my sincerest prayer that everybody listening this morning is indeed a child of God. But God, I, I know theologically Satan has planted tares in every wheat field, and I know there's going to be people here who are maybe religious but lost, religious but not converted, 
people who are trusting in the name, fact that their name is on a membership role in a church and now I'm good with God or they're trusting in the fact that I've been to church my whole life. I've been told I'm a Christian and they're resting in the testimony of somebody else. Lord, I pray that you would use the Beatitudes to cause us to evaluate our own hearts. Are these attributes truly in me? These attributes that are in every child of the kingdom, are they present in my life? Lord, as your children, I pray that not only are we born again, but that we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We long to be right with you. We hunger for your word. We hunger for your presence. God, fill us with that which satisfies and help us not to buy the lie of Satan that he has something far more appealing in the gratification of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Lord, help us not to love the world nor the things of this world. When we love the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in him. God, I pray that you would convict the heart of anybody who is religious but not converted today. Help us to put aside our pride and our desire for earthly acclaim in things and to find the satisfaction that only Jesus gives. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.